Whether you're a Federation diplomat, a budding astromycologist, or a much-missed xenonaratologist, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. I want to begin by extending an extra special welcome to anyone who recently discovered this podcast at two public events I did over the past few weeks. The first was a session at Comic-Con LA called Our Sci-Fi Future, where I served on a panel of scientists and science fiction writers talking about the fate of humanity. The second is the University of Washington Physics Slam, where I gave a brief TED-type talk on my research in astrobiology. So, if you're joining us after attending one of those, or if you're just joining us for the first time for no particular reason whatsoever, welcome. Today, my guest is my former co-host, Elise Cutts. She visited me in Seattle shortly before departing the United States for Denmark, where she'll be a Fulbright Fellow conducting 10 months of microbiology research unraveling how bacteria created the atmosphere that we breathe today. For more on the science of that project, head over to episode 74 of Strange New Worlds. But today, we're discussing the Star Trek Discovery novel, The Way to the Stars, written by Dr. Una McCormick. Now, part of the package is that we'll be spoiling some of the major plot points of this book. So if you'd rather not hear about those right now, then I suggest you hit pause, visit your local library or bookstore, and go read this fantastic addition to the Star Trek universe first. At the same time, I don't want you to feel like you have to have read this book to get something out of our discussion. I've made sure to summarize all of the scenes that we talk about. Now, the reason why we chose this book in particular is because it's about a young Sylvia Tilly, prior to her joining Starfleet. Young Tilly is a curious, inexperienced, and undoubtedly brilliant person, struggling to gain the acceptance of her mother, her mentors, her peers, and to find her place in the universe. And Elise, being a young, early career scientist herself, is the perfect person to weigh in and share her experience navigating a similar, but different, journey. Hey, Elise. Hey, Mike. <laughs> Welcome to Seattle. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> it's it's kind of wild to be doing this in a new place. It's good to be here. Really nice office, really nice city, really nice campus. But yeah. it isn't Caltech, which is a bit weird it to is see you weird. in a place that's not there. Mm-hmm. But I'm here now under the gray skies and... <laughs> My homeland. Well, home. I'm not quite from Seattle, but I'm from better Seattle. Mm. So. Better Seattle. Yes. Because I was going to say I was from better Portland. Yeah, well, you're clearly wrong. (laughs) I think all of this grad school has just muddled your brain a little bit. Uh, I'm going crazy. Mm -hmm. Senile. Mm -hmm. Old man. Oh, dear. Yes. (laughs) Well, we're here to talk about a wonderful Star Trek Discovery book 
that we both read recently called The Way to the Stars, written by Dr. Una McCormick. And this book focused on Tilly, who is, I think, one of our favorite characters. She's definitely one of my favorite characters on Discovery. I don't know what your feelings are about Tilly. Yeah, I like Tilly a lot. Um, I think she's a very interesting counterpoint to the classic, you know, badass Star Trek character, in that she's very much not a badass, but she still does very important things that are certainly like feats of whatever it is she's doing. But she's not doing it with that steely, you know, Michael Burnham style emotional distance or that swashbuckling Pike, you know, swagger. She's bubbly and she trips over herself and she snores. Um, <laughs> so she's, she's definitely a very different character and I do like that about her. Yeah, she has this quote. I love to feel feelings. <laughs> I feel like yeah, it sums up she does Tilly. love to feel feelings, which is cool for a science-based character, which is, you know, we often see Star Trek scientists as these very detached, calculating, logical people. Mm-hmm. I was about to say creatures. Um, and uh, Some of them are creatures, I yeah, guess. Yeah, I mean, humans way. are creatures, I suppose. But, but they, they, almost, they, they seem a bit detached from the, the rest of their, you know, a, bit, a little bit more removed from the rest of their human, human experiences or their human crewmates in a way that Tilly definitely is not. I mean, Tilly ultimately wants out of engineering and she wants to be in command, which is interesting as well. I mean, it's almost a Janeway-type story of starting in a, in a STEM branch of Starfleet and then ending up in command. But, I mean, Janeway had that kind of cool... Michael Burnham-esque, you know, level-headed, emotional containment that Tilly does not have mm-hmm. at all. So, Yeah. And Janeway has sort of made it to yeah. captaincy by the time yeah, we Tilly's, encounter her. Yeah, Tilly's, you know, in her proto-stage. Yeah. yeah she, we're seeing her come into herself rather than seeing her at the end of being herself. And that makes me wonder, too, about what a young Janeway would look like. <laughs> would young Janeway and Ensign Tilly be friends? Oh, I think young Janeway would probably find Ensign Tilly pretty annoying. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would probably find Ensign Tilly pretty annoying if I had to live with Ensign Tilly. Mm-hmm. I mean, not least because she would just beat me at everything, you know, while being <laughs> as she is. So I could I could see young Janeway having a similar reaction. But maybe maybe I'm just projecting, you know? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're talking about this book at a very special time in your life as well as a young scientist. You have just finished four years of grueling Caltech. So congratulations on graduating, first of all. <laughs> and, and, uh, and you're also about to embark on your wonderful Fulbright journey to Denmark, where you'll be doing research for 10 months. Mm-hmm. And so this is sort of a very formative and life-changing period for you. And you've also just oh, made it through uh, a big hurdle, which is that college experience. In yeah, quotes, capital I suppose. C, capital E. <laughs> and so it's, it's really cool to be able to reflect on your own life in relation to the Tilly book. So hopefully we'll have a fun time talking about both Tilly's journey and your journey. Yeah, absolutely. So this book starts out introducing Tilly in relationship to her mom, Siobhan. And Siobhan is a very, very esteemed member of the Federation Diplomatic Corps. And Tilly, young Tilly, feels this pressure from her mom to be as broad as possible, because apparently to be a good diplomat, which I know nothing about, but apparently to be a good diplomat, you need to know a little bit of everything. I guess so that you can connect to people from all walks of life, from all sorts of planets in and outside of the Federation. But Tilly really wants to just focus on one thing, which is science. And she's in love with this very particular subject called astromycology. And so when I was reading this, I was 
reflecting on how I actually feel very opposite of Tilly, as a scientist, I feel very oppressed by how narrow my area of research is. I had a philosophy professor in college who once described academia as learning more and more about less and less until you know everything about nothing, <laughs> which I feel is sort of the track that a lot of scientists are on. It's just you're, you're narrowing your focus until you become the expert in this one little thing that you're the best in the world at so that you can advance that one little point of, of the field. And how do you feel about this as, as a young scientist? Do you feel like your trajectory is getting narrower and narrower? Do you feel like you want to broaden out? Do you feel like you're Tilly and you want to focus on something narrow and just let everything slide? Or do you feel more like a, a diplomat? Mm. Well, I, I, will, I will start by saying I found it a little bit annoying in the book how certain Tilly was at 16 that she wanted to be an astromycologist. <laughs> and I... You know, maybe this is just coming from a place of, like like you were saying, it, it can be really frustrating if you're the kind of person who finds a lot of things interesting in science because we sort of fetishize this single-track-mindedness. I mean, certainly a lot of really important discoveries have come from people who have a single-track mind about science. But I think, you you know, maybe the, the generalists among us are sort of yearning for the days when people were like Renaissance humans. Um, and, you know, you'd have you'd have scientists who were, who were also philosophers and scientists who, who were discovering things in physics and chemistry and biology. And they were just interested in the world and looking at it. And like their one track of mind was just for being curious, not for specializing. And so I found I found it one, you know, the classic stereotype of scientists to be like, I love science. Science, science, science. Science is my only thing ever, and I know exactly what I want to do for it. That that but that just rubbed me the wrong way about about Tilly in in the book in a way that it didn't in the show because I think in the show she is more of a generalist. I mean, she's she works in engineering, but she also works on astromycology. It's not put forward really that astromycology was her one thing from the very beginning in the way it is with Stamets. Um, and then she also like wants to do command. She's trying to be emotionally accessible to people. She is much more of a generalist in the show. Um, and getting that look into, you know, she knew what she wanted to do from the very beginning and her mom just didn't know it and didn't know it correctly. Like that, I was just like, okay, all right. This is not the experience that I had. And it's not the experience that I think most young scientists have had when I talk to them. A lot of us are really confused about what we want to do. Um, and, it, and, and we're sort of, you know, every time we apply for a fellowship, we have to say we know exactly what we want to do for the rest of our life because they don't want to give you the money if you're, if you're saying, you know, maybe I don't want to do the specific niche thing that I'm, that I'm currently doing forever. Um, but, you know, most of us are sort of flying by the seat of our pants. And you might have a broad idea of, like, I'm more interested in the problems biologists are approaching than the problems that physicists are approaching, or I'm more interested in the problems that, you know, exoplanet scientists are approaching than the problems that Earth scientists are approaching. But, but the very specific niche is, is often difficult to find. And I often feel as though you, you run into it by chance. Like it's just sort of who you happen to know and what the opportunities that you get more than you had a vision when you were 16 of doing this specific project. But I mean, I'm sure there are people out there who are like that. I'm, I'm sure they're there. I, I bet I've run into some of them at Caltech. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but that is the sort of standard narrative of scientists is, you know, somebody who always knew exactly what they wanted to do and, you know, had the single, single track mindedness. And that's just... It's almost, um, it's very easy to become self-conscious when you're not like that in science, because that is what's fetishized. And that is the narrative we see among scientists and among the popular writings about science and popular portrayals of science in, in shows. Um, so it was just, you know, when I read the book, I was like, another one of these. All right. Yeah, yeah. and there are definitely one-track mind people 
in science, but also in other aspects. Yeah, yeah, for too. sure. So, like, it's just my, so much a stereotype of scientists. My uncle, for yeah. instance, knew ever since he was in fourth grade that he wanted to draw comics, and he yeah. just did that, and he just drew, and he never went to college or anything else. He just he knew what stories he wanted to tell, and he is now a professional comic book artist. Yeah. But, um, you know, it, it is well worth it to realize that a lot of scientists, as you say, are just figuring it out as they go along mm-hmm. and that we're just human too. We have conflicting interests. We have different aspects of our lives, family, location uh, that you want to work in uh, that, that play into how, what our careers end up being as well. So yeah. it's it's not always like, yes, I have a dream and I've had a dream ever since I was a little kid, but a lot of people are just trying to figure out some way to have a have a stable job and, and to be a scientist. Yeah, I mean, I know a lot of people in science who knew they wanted to do science forever, but I mean, maybe in the Starfleet future, you get exposed to more topics more early. But at least now, I mean, it would be really difficult to know that you wanted to be an Earth scientist early because you're, you're not going to take an Earth, if you're in an advanced science curriculum, especially if you're preparing to go to a high level college and you're taking AP classes, you're probably not going to see Earth science until college. Um, and it's hard to get an idea what research, you know, studying AP physics is not going to tell you what a physicist does. Like physics was my favorite subject in high school, and I am not a physicist. Like that's very clear when I went to college that that was I was not a physicist because the research that's being done is not, you know, Newton's laws anymore. <laughs> it's moved past that in every field. And if you like high school biology, you might not like biology research because a lot of it is not the very neat classical experience that people did to figure out what is DNA, you know, what what are proteins. That's that's not where we are anymore. And a lot of the research is, is being done to, using methods that people won't be exposed to until they get there. So it, it is quite difficult to even know what you want to do in science, even if you know, if you have that tilly conviction that you want to be a scientist, knowing that you wanted to be an exologist is quite difficult, I think. Interesting that you brought up that you never took an earth science class in high school because my freshman class in high school was essentially an earth science class. Was it really? It was, and it was the last time that my high school arranged their science curriculum that way. But for the way that I went through high school, I did an earth science class, and then chemistry, and then biology, and then finally physics. Yeah. But... I guess now with the emphasis of, you know, getting people on the fast track to college, yeah. you know. It's, it's also, you know, it's not something that's in standard, you know, I don't think in most states it's required mm-hmm. that students get earth science the same way it is for other more basic subjects. So it's something that, for instance, my high school didn't have any earth science classes at all. Really? Um, nope, you couldn't even take it as an elective. We had one ecology class, and that's just because the, the teacher liked ecology. Um, and if you were on the advanced track for anything, you couldn't take it. Um, and then none of the none of the schools in my district had earth science either, just because we didn't happen to have teachers who could teach it. And we live in the Pacific Northwest too. I mean, it's relevant. So we live under volcanoes and in the threat of earthquakes. This so. makes me want to go and become a high school teacher and teach earth science, astronomy, and astrobiology. I'm sure everyone would love you. <laughs> You'd be teaching the most interesting classes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So Tilly has this experience with her mom. They go on a vacation to London to try to bond with one another. And the way this chapter was set up, 
kind of reminded me of that scene in 500 Days of Summer. Have you seen that? No, movie? I haven't. Okay, so yeah. in this scene, there's this split screen between this guy's expectations versus reality. Oh, and no. so, you know, he's, he's yeah. like, trying to go on a date with this girl and he's got his expectations about how it's going to go and then mirroring that as the live reality of what is actually happening. And it's, you know, oh, it starts God. out the same, but it quickly diverges into very different endings. Um, and so Tilly's expectations for London is I'm going to have such a great culture cultured time. I'm going to go to all the museums. I'm going to learn a lot. We're going to engage in some beautiful Shakespeare plays, and it's going to be a nerdy time. And instead, her mom takes her to go clothes shopping, to visit a personal stylist, and then to get dinner at a very fancy but boring restaurant. And there's this beautiful quote on page 25 of the book where the author describes Tilly saying, quote, her feet hurt, her head hurt, and a little bit of her soul hurt too. And so you spent some time with your mom in London recently. I haven't been to London in over 10 years. What kind of adventure did you have? Did you have a more Tilly-esque adventure or more of a Tilly's mom-esque adventure? Yeah, I was struck by how odd that was that Tilly's mom was, you know, who's the diplomat who's trying to get Tilly to do better in all of her cultural classes, was just into shopping. In any case, um, the, um, the the trip I took with my mom, we actually did end up doing a lot of the Tilly things. So we did go to the Globe. It's great. It's really cheap, too. It's, it's awesome. If you end up in London, they really do make an effort to make it accessible to everybody. You can get standing room tickets for like five pounds um, when we went, at least, which was great. Um, so we went and saw... We, I think we saw Hamlet, which was which was cool. You've never seen Hamlet until you've seen it in the original Klingon. Yeah. Yeah, I am <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, sure that Klingon performances of Hamlet exist, and I would love to go see one. I wouldn't understand anything. I don't speak any Klingon, but um, I think it's on Duolingo, so maybe we can brush up. Uh, I went to, you know, all those museums that Tilly mentions in the book. I love museums, um, probably a little too much, you know, considering... Considering the controversy over some of the things sitting in the British Museum right now. But it's great because you can just go in there and everything, the whole world, is right there. Um, you want to go walk through cuneiform tablets for, for an hour? Go do it. It's there. You want to go look at relics from Southeast Asia? All right, that's also there. You want to go look at this crazy room full of weird stuffed animals brought back from you know South America a long, long time ago? Sure. You know There's a museum for that. It exists. A lot of them um, are very close to each other. And, and really, there are a few, few cities I've been to that have museums as fun as, as, fun as London. Um, I will say D.C. You know, they're all free in D.C. So if you're American, you don't have to go all the way to London to see cool things. You just, just go to D.C. All the museums are free. Smithsonian's great. Um, but yeah, uh, we, we also didn't go to like very fancy restaurants. Um, we went to a high tea somewhere. I don't know. That was, I suppose, a Tilly's mom sort of adventure. But tea is delicious, so I was quite happy to go and do that with my mom. <laughs> um, yeah, it was it was definitely more of a more of a Tilly's adventure than than Tilly's mom adventure. I mean, at this point, my mom has figured out I don't really like shopping that much. You know, sometimes I'll go shopping with her, but it's when I need something. It's not just you know, okay, we're gonna go shopping and put your hair up and you know put you in some high heels like Tilly's mom was doing. That was that struck me as really weird, especially considering she's a diplomat and was always you know going on about culture. So I would have thought she would have taken her to museums, but maybe that was like too close to home with her xenoarchaeologist father. Like, she didn't want to be around all uh, the relics because yes. it would just open up old wounds. Right. Yeah. We'll get to Tilly's <laughs> father in just a bit. Yeah. But yeah, I guess for a diplomat, probably appearances are, you know, over half the battle. And so, you know, always yeah. having your hair nice or whatnot um, is, is part of the gig. 
Well, not too long later in the book, Tilly's mom sends her off to a boarding school in another world, and Tilly has a little bit of a hard time mixing with her peers. This is a boarding school specifically for becoming a Federation diplomat. But then she discovers a hobby that she really enjoys, which is called Arixian boat racing. And um, Tilly gets a taste of what it's like to be a captain and give commands and organize a team of people. And um, she even fixes an engine on one of these boats and should get the admiration of her peers, but then they start lashing out at her instead. So she decides to start an engineering club at her school to pursue an interest despite active non-interest in that subject for many of her peers, including her roommate. Um, so Tilly is trying to find herself and fit in by doing these extracurricular activities. I was wondering, in your college experience, Elise, can you speak to some of the extracurricular activities that you did that gave you a sense of purpose and belonging? Well, I met, I met Mike through, <laughs> through Boldly Go, which was theater. I never did theater again. But, you know, it was great because I met Mike and then I got into the astrobiology community. Um, I did water polo for a bit. I didn't find my community there. Uh, but then I started doing yearbook and yearbook was was more of that. And I did I did acapella. Two of the most important people in my life right now I met through acapella. You know, at a place like Caltech, a lot of people do music. I would say there's sort of a stronger culture when it comes to orchestra music. But the acapella scene is is strangely large. It's not good, but, but it, you know, it takes a certain kind of uh, willingness to, to laugh at yourself to be in a bad acapella group at a really good science and technology college. Um, so, so I did meet some really great people through that. And then yearbook, of course, great experience there. That was one of the more leadershipy experiences. Um, really, it, it ultimately doesn't matter too much what you do. Like, I'm not going to keep doing acapella. It's not like it's my passion, you know, like Tilly's engineering or whatever. I just did it to meet people because it was kind of a fun way to relax. Really, the, the big thing was just having some structured socialization. And, and that sort of struck me as more similar to rowing, like uh, the, the Arxian paddle boating or, or whatever. It's, it sounded a lot like dragon boat racing, which is something I did in high school. That she wasn't doing that because, you know, being on a boat was her, her life's passion. But she was doing it because her roommate was doing it, because it was a way for her to have a place to be with other people. And I think for most of us, that's what a lot of our extracurriculars are. Maybe we'll have one that's our passion project. But often it's, it's really just looking for that sense of community. That's ultimately what most of my extracurriculars ended up being. I mean, maybe I'll end up doing some kind of journalism or something. That would be yearbook relevant. But I'm certainly not going to go be a professional singer. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, despite what you said about the level of talent at the Caltech acapella <laughs> I'm sorry, scene, Caltech you, acapella. <laughs> you, being a person who has heard you sing, you were one of the better ones. <laughs> <laughs> So when Tilly's mom finds out what she's been spending her time doing, which is organizing this engineering club, Tilly is pushed into dropping that extracurricular. Did you have to make any sacrifices in college? I feel like everybody goes into college, you know, really excited to do everything that is offered. And maybe people overextend themselves. Did you find that you had to make a sacrifice? Oh, I had to quit water polo. Mm. That was just, I was finding it not to be an efficient use of my time insofar as I would lose fitness when I was in season. So, I mean, Caltech's not known for its sports. We're getting a lot better. 
Um, I think it was just perhaps a, a quirk of the team when I was on it. Or maybe, you know, as a goalie, like maybe the workouts were not tailored to me or whatever. But I just didn't find it to be the, my community for one thing, and I didn't find it to be improving a skill. And I was spending two hours a day doing it, and so it just was something I had to cut. Um, I quit acapella my senior year because a lot of the people who were, again, the community left, so the people who I knew were no longer there and so it no longer felt worth it. And I had to take a lot of classes as a senior because I switched majors late. So yeah, I did sort of have to balance my coursework with my extracurriculars and um, making the choice to, to drop acapella was, was hard. I mean, it's something that I had done since I was a freshman. So yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that's super unusual either. People are always, what is unusual is having your parents scream at you about it in the same way that, that Tilly's mom did. Or, you know, having a parent who'd be disappointed in you for starting an engineering club. <laughs> it, still, Tilly's mom struck me as, like, ludicrously terrible. You mm-hmm. know, it, yeah. <laughs> for, for, for someone, you know, as cultured and poised and educated as Tilly's mom, and who has seen the work of Starfleet scientists, and who married an, a xenoarchaeologist, to be so shocked and incapable of understanding that her daughter might be interested in engineering struck me as kind of ludicrous. But, uh, but yeah, no, my mom certainly didn't call me up and say, you know, stop singing, that's useless. She's like, honey, do you have enough friends? Are you doing enough things to make friends? You know, she was more worried about me neglecting the social side than anything else. So it was almost like a reverse situation. You know, like I was being like Tilly's mom and then, you know, to myself, you know, she's like, I have to quit these extracurriculars because I don't, you know, I got to focus on school. And I was like, are you going to have enough friends? You know, I appreciate that about her. But much better to have a mom asking you if you have enough friends than, you know, forcing you to quit your engineering club because you must study more. Like, ugh. So Tilly just gets fed up with her new school, with her classmates, and with her mom. And so she runs away. And immediately after running away on this transport ship going who knows where, her bag is stolen with all of her things, all of her IDs, whatever you have in the because 23rd of course century. It would be. <laughs> yeah. Um, and why aren't they microchipped? There's a quote in, uh, <laughs> in the book, page 125, that says she, Tilly, wasn't going to ask for help because she wasn't prepared to admit that she had failed. I feel like Throughout this entire misadventure of running away, Tilly kind of misses the big picture of running away, the impact that it has on other people who are very rightfully worried about her, and just trudges on, not looking for a way to get out of it. You think this is a symptom of her laser focus? How did you how did you read this scene? Was Tilly just being overly emotional? Was she trying to prove a point? Was she just trying to get away from all of this pressure that had been attacking her from every single side? It struck me as a couple of things. One, just a classic case of juvenile self-centeredness in that it was more important to her to preserve her dignity when it came to not looking like she had failed than to consider the immense amount of emotional stress she was causing and literal financial and work stress she was causing to the Federation and the people who work for the Federation. Because she's a diplomat's daughter. They had to mobilize a whole you know, security force because she very well could have been kidnapped for some kind of use as ransom. She caused a lot of people to have a very bad time just to prove a point, which struck me as incredibly juvenile. And, and then I also, I mean, but, but I'm like reading into why she felt she needed to make that point and what the point was. I mean, the point was clearly, you know, one, you're pushing me too hard. This school sucks. This isn't what I want to do with my life. And two, I can make it on my own. 
you know, I can, I'm capable, I can get by on my own talent as an engineer and, and a, you know, science-minded person. That was sort of what she was out to prove by the end. And, you know, of course, in classic Starfleet style, she does it with flying colors, and as soon as she's out from her mom's thun, everything is better, and she's got a ton of friends, and, you know, everyone she meets is just dazzled by her intelligence. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I, I thought that there was, a, like, a little bit of, you know, Tilly is perfect in some ways. You know, every way except emotionally, she was completely perfect in, in the book. That, that little bit did bug me, and in a, in a story that, that was overall like, very important for her character to show why she, why she is the way she is. You know, she was forced to this extreme by her, her ridiculously extreme mother. So I guess, I mean, Tilly, Tilly had a really valid reason for, for being upset, but she definitely did not think through what she was doing to other people. So it was a very selfish thing for her to do. In, in that way, she is flawed. So, as far as I know, you've never run away from home. No. But was there ever a point in your life where you really did want to prove a point to somebody and you did something drastic? Not this drastic, obviously, but you wanted to show what you were made of and people were doubting you or not believing in you or telling you what to do and you wanted to say, no, I'm going to stake out my own area I'm going to be who I want to be. Um, well, I actually did have a teacher in high school tell me not to go to Caltech um, because he thought I was you know, too emotionally fragile. Here's to you, Mr. Peterson. I did make it through. Um, I, if, if by some, some miracle you're listening to this, uh, yeah, I did it. Mm-hmm. It happened. So didn't break. Still here. Got a Fulbright. You know, whatever. Anyways, the... <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think he was probably, you know, the most overt instance of that. But as far as the... And, you know, you know as soon as he said that, of course, like, that's the school i got to go to, right? Because he told me I can't do it. Um, you know, maybe it was a plot the whole time. Maybe he was just secretly the best teacher ever. You can't see me, but I'm just sitting here shaking my head. <laughs> but, but, um... Um, I will say that, that uh, you know, there's a big culture of collaboration on, on work at Caltech that I sort of opted out of because I wanted to know that I was capable of doing a lot of it. I mean, I certainly worked with people every once in a while, but, but I, I definitely did not rely on it as much as some a lot of people who I know. And I mean, maybe that was like a bad social decision, but I, I definitely feel like I earned or at least I was accountable for, you know, when I got that B in OCHEM, that was my B. I earned that B. I was going to fail, but I got that B on my own, you know, rather than, you know, collaborating a little bit more. And maybe I would have learned more by doing that, but I but I also learned how to study on my own, which I think is an important skill, too. Um, and when I say collaboration, this is not like over-collaboration. Everyone who's doing this was, you know, completely above the board. It was totally okay to do it. Um, but sometimes choosing not to work with someone on an assignment and maybe risk a worse grade just as a way to prove that you can do it on your own. It's stubborn and it's stupid, um, just like the Tilly situation is in some ways. You know, Maybe it would be easier for you to collaborate and maybe you would even be better off if you did. But some part of your like human spirit is like, I gotta do this on my own, beat your chest and like get what you're gonna get and um, you know, see, see what you can do on your own merit. Some of it's just wanting to know what you can do. Like, what am I capable of? And I, that's a lot of like, can I climb this mountain? Can I run this fast? This is a lot of people's, a lot of people's hobbies are actually just questions about what they can do. You know, how hard can I push myself in X? What am I capable of achieving in X? Um, those sort of achievement-based hobbies, I think are all speaking to that. 
that human question is like, what am I capable of? Mm, I really like the way that's phrased. Yeah. And I feel like Tilly is after that question yeah, too when she runs for away. Sure. I mean, cause she's never been allowed to know, right? She always knew she was getting A's in science, but she never knew she could fix a Starfleet engine, a, a Starship engine. She never knew she could make it on her own. Um, and leaving out from her mom's domain, like literally out from her mom's sort of circle that she put her in this high school on this world. Getting away and being her own anonymous person was really the only way she could, she felt that she could know what she was capable of doing. So that's, I mean, that's a very understandable feeling. She did it in a really dumb way that caused a lot of people a lot of stress. But the reason she did it is is understandable. So as you said, a lot of people find Tilly to be absolutely amazing at engineering, especially when she's off on her own. And she befriends the engineer of this starship that she stowed away on. The engineer's name is Sala. And Sala sort of recruits Tilly to be her personal assistant. And while under Sala's tutelage, Tilly rediscovers her love and aptitude for engineering. And there's this quote on page 152 that tools work for her. Unlike champagne glasses, high heels, and lipstick, Tilly really feels at home, and she is just loving this experience being uh, a quote-unquote Padawan for Sala. Wrong universe. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> um, and so, so, you know, sometimes you find mentors in very unexpected places. They don't always announce themselves like, ah, I am going to be your teacher, and you are going to be my student, and you will learn this amazing skill set. Sometimes you find them in unexpected places, and I feel like maybe that's something that happened with you at Caltech. Yeah, to some extent. I wouldn't say I ever had a, a moment, you know, an aha, like, this is what I belonged. I, I've actually had a lot more moments of doubt um, that I've started, you know, now that I'm out of Caltech, it's easier to look back in hindsight and be like, you know, some of my frustration with science was just frustration with a heavy course load. and and uh, the graduation of my friends and whatever. But I have had a lot of doubt with science. I don't think I'd ever have, say that there is a, you know, an aha moment where I was sitting there and was like, this, this is what I should be doing with my life. This specific niche thing with this tool, this is my life. I've had a lot of, you know, very, very overall pleasant experiences being in the science world. And I always find that I'm happier when I go back to it than when I'm away from it. So I think that's more how I know that it's what I want to do rather than you know, sitting there basking in the glory of the beam from heaven telling me that I, you know, belong here. Um, but I have had some some really good mentors. I would say you were a mentor that came out of a very, very strange place, you know, the stage in a Sulu costume. <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I did have a lot of mentors at Caltech. And the ones who ended up sticking were not any of the spoon-fed ones. You know, you go to a university like Caltech and they will do their very best, they being administration, will do their very best to set you up with enough professors that if you choose to go to grad school, you will have someone to write you a letter of rec. And they do this with academic advisors. You have an academic advisor as a freshman and then you have a different one when you go into your major and if you change majors, you get new ones. You also have the professors who you take classes with, and some classes are kept small on purpose so that you will be forced to sort of interact with these professors in a more personal way. Um, None of those profs are the ones who I have the closest relationships with today, um, except for one of my academic advisors who I am close with because she was also one of my research advisors. All of the people who I ended up being closest with at Caltech, and I befriended, or, or maybe not, befriend is a not the right word. I ended up having, you know, close professional relationships with a lot of professors just because I knocked on their doors and sort of said hi and introduced myself or I took a class with them and 
it was that really annoying kid who, who didn't shut up and raised my hand a lot and asked a ton of questions. And then, you know, I would just keep following up, you know, send them emails and bug them and you know, show up at their door and ask them for research and um, ask them to teach me. You know, I had, I had a prof who was nice enough to teach me a class, just me and one other student that he wasn't planning on teaching. Um, so thank you so much for that, if you're listening. <laughs> um, the, the, it, was just, it, was really, it was really just a matter of asking people for things. And I think that's something that, that a lot of people don't realize is that you can just ask. People, all of these people are people. Um, Tilly's running away is sort of like her asking in some ways. Like, I mean, she, she perhaps didn't knock on a door so much as take a battering ram to it. But uh, most of the people I know who have had a similar experience knowing a lot of professors and, and having a lot of really good mentors also came into it, you know, through these sort of back channels rather than, you know, you just happen to be randomly placed with the academic advisor who's going to, to, to be the best fit for advising you. You know, really, the odds are not high that that will happen. Maybe randomly you'll get put with someone who's great, but if you go and choose the person that you want to have a connection with, you have a much better shot at having a good connection. So yeah, I, I suppose I did have a lot of unexpected mentorships. Yeah, so I think that that sense of urgency and initiative to say, look, I'm going to stick around after class or I'm going to email a professor or I'm going to just go knock on their door is something that is a really good tip, something that hopefully young people listening to this podcast, if you're still in college or even in grad school or if you're about to go to college, uh, to keep that in mind that sometimes it just takes a little bit of initiative on your part to go seek out those opportunities. Yeah, I never got an internship I applied for until, you know, the two things that I have got that I have applied for were getting into Caltech and getting Fulbright. All of the other research experience that I have, all of the other connections and cool things that I've got to do happened because I asked somebody to let me do them in person. So yeah, just because something, just because an opportunity doesn't exist, doesn't mean you can't make it exist. This is exactly what Tilly does. Like there was no posting for an internship on the ship. She just literally stowed away and showed up and then, you know, basically like beat the people on the ship over the head with her ability to do things and fix stuff until they let her stick around. So she certainly did not apply for a position on that ship. Not a traditional internship experience there. So finally, Tilly is rescued or reclaimed back into Federation society, and she joins the USS Dorothy Garrod. I hope I'm pronouncing that name. Jared? Garrod? Yeah, I don't know who Some, that was. I should have looked yeah, it up. I think it's um, one of the first women archaeologists, oh, okay. uh, I believe. Let me just look this up right now. Dorothy Garrod. Um who is a professor of archaeology at the University of Cambridge, the first woman to hold the Oxbridge chair. Well, in any case, Tilly's father, Ian, is a scientist on this vessel. And when she talks to her father, finally, after um, all of this time, just I assume the 23rd century equivalent of Skyping with him, she's finally in the same room with him, um, her father talks about his passion, his own passion for xenoarchaeology. And he talked about how his obsession with runes at a young age sort of was met with scorn from his peers and his elders. Runes, why are you always, you know, going on and on about runes and old things and broken things? But he turned that into a profession, which is called xenoarchaeology. And he tells Tilly that she should find what her runes are. And Tilly knows immediately that they're mushrooms. Everybody makes fun of her for liking mushrooms so much, but there is a profession waiting for her called astromycology. And this really reminded me of turning an obsession with trying to understand 
the possibility for life in the universe, aliens and aliens and aliens. I was always interested in, you know, when I was a kid, UFOs and Star Trek and things like that, and turning that into a profession called astrobiology, which is a legitimate science these days. But it wasn't always that way, you know. There's still a little bit of a laugh factor associated with astrobiology, uh, and certainly, you know, going looking for aliens when you're a kid is not exactly something that people are going to say, yes, that's going to give you a stable job in the future, but um, in some way, it can. And so that's something that I thought of when I was reading this. You know, you take a silly passion of yours when you're a child, and and if you work hard enough, you can find a way to make that your living. So one of the things that Tilly really loves about astromycology is all of the connections, intellectual connections, that is associated with that field. And even though there aren't any active astromycologists on board this ship, there are plenty of data scientists and statisticians. And she hangs out with them. It's like she's found her peer group in the engineering bay. And I feel like Astrobiology and geobiology, which is what you majored in at Caltech, is also all about intellectual connections. These are very young fields that only cropped up in the past couple decades. Um, it's a field that really only exists because of a direct intersection between two other very well-established fields. So, Elise, what is your favorite connection in the kind of work that you've done at Caltech? Ooh, that's hard. Um... You know, one of the fundamental things that people study in geobiology is microbial metabolism, because it's this this link. You know, if you draw if you draw the carbon cycle, if you draw the nitrogen cycle, if you draw a lot of the important elemental cycles for the Earth, you'll have these you know, sort of eras going to places, and they'll become one element, and then you know there'll be an arrow, and it'll, the element will be in one one uh, form, and then it, you'll draw an arrow, and it'll come out in a different form in a different place. And the unseen black box on that arrow that turns it from one thing into the other, it's sometimes geochemistry, but it's often microbial metabolism. Um, and so it's this very fundamental way that the biosphere talks to the, the geosphere and vice versa by, by sort of forcing and, and um, having these feedbacks on microbial metabolism and, and microbial metabolism being a feedback and a force on the earth. You know, so, so people started to recognize this uh, a while ago. And people started studying it to try and understand mineral formation and whatnot. But I think one of the interesting things that came out of it was there was some work done by Diane Newman and some people, and she's a, she's a professor at Caltech, and some people that she was working with on bacteria that essentially breathe rocks. And that ended up through a long convoluted chain of, of coincidences, or maybe not coincidences, but, you know, connections ending up also being relevant to the, the pathogenicity of cystic fibrosis or the, the, the development of cystic fibrosis and why it's deadly for people and actually a therapy that they started to think of developing and have actually gone on to, to develop and, and do clinical trials in that was inspired by rock-breathing bacteria that she was studying just for their own sake, not for any kind of health reason at all. But it ended up turning out that the way that microbes talk to, to the earth is not completely dissimilar from the way that they talk to the kinds of things they would be breathing or not breathing, you know, if they're using fermentation and whatnot. The, the kinds of things they produce in, in the context in the earth is not dissimilar from the kinds of things they produce in this specific cystic fibrosis context. So that was a cool connection in that a discovery made in, in rock, rock bacteria ended up being relevant to improving patient outcomes for cystic fibrosis. In general, I think microbial metabolism is, is great because it does sit at this intersection of health and the environment and earth history 
you know, it, it's just an incredibly powerful thing. And so if you study it, you could very easily find yourself wandering through fields because they're all linked to this central idea, but whatever subfield the current problem they're looking at happens to fall in, whatever. Like, is this a geology problem? Eh, it's a microbial metabolism problem. Is this a health problem? Eh, it's a microbial metabolism problem. It's like they found the, the deeper key underlying these this family of issues that showed up in all sorts of different fields. That's awesome. Yeah. The, I apologize um, to any researchers whose research I just butchered. I have to, <laughs> you know, remember a cool story I was told by told by Professor Newman a long time ago. But. No, that's great. Yeah. The, you see in the smallest kind of life on Earth, these broad scale connections and implications to human health, to the way our world cycles elements mm-hmm. around um, and I think that's something that's super exciting that we could only well, they're everywhere, really know. Right? Yeah. yeah, this is I mean these processes are happening everywhere that microbes exist, which is you know everywhere above a certain depth in the Earth's crust. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to mention that um, Captain Yindi Holden, the captain of this vessel, the USS Dorothy Gerard, 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 still don't know how to say it. Captain Dorothy. <laughs> captain the, Dorothy. The Dorothy. The Dorothy. Dorothy G. The Dorothy G. Yes. Um, <laughs> captain Yindi Holden is a xenonaritologist by training. And I, I find that this is absolutely amazing. Only something that I think Professor Una McCormick the author of this book, who is a professor of creative writing, would think about that, yeah, you know, people study literature here on Earth, right? But if you had a galactic civilization like the Federation, you would have people doing comparative literatology, comparative narratology, and that would be what a xenonarratologist would do. So anyway, Yindi Holden seems like a very, very um, awesome captain. She's very caring and very worried about the drop in productivity of Lieutenant Ian Tilly um, now that his daughter is on board, which is, I guess, kind of the opposite of a very common issue today where male bosses get very worried about a drop in productivity of their female employees when they have kids, which is, of course, part of a, of a larger systemic issue of workplace inequality and stereotypical gender roles. But Holden's solution was basically to get Tilly to go and hang out with the engineers and the data scientists, and uh, in that way, not uh, take up so much of her father's time. And Tilly, again, finds her tribe in engineering. I was wondering if, if there was a time at Caltech or in high school or something like that, where, where you found your tribe, that you were in a situation in a group of people who shared your common interests? Mm. There's a lot of very strong, this is where I belong in, in this book. You know, Tilly's having these experiences that are like, this is 100% me. I'm not a 100% me kind of person. Um, that's just not how I operate. That's um, fair. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I will say that that within Caltech, the geology division definitely felt a lot more like home. You know, I don't have a lot of Caltech pride, but I wear my geology division shirt around everywhere. <laughs> um, because, I mean, there is, like, culture among geologists, right? Maybe maybe, maybe geology geologists aren't my, like, tribe or whatever in the way that Tilly had one, but they're definitely, you know, my kind of people. You know, they go into the desert, they hike, they go rock climbing, they climb mountains, they have a beer, you know. They take Sundays off. They take for Saturdays off, too. Um, they, they tend to be sort of a chiller scientist who ended up doing what they're doing because they love it. You don't end up being a geologist because you want prestige or, or fame or riches or anything. Very few people's parents probably were overjoyed to find out they had a rock hound for a child. Why don't you go cure cancer, Jimmy? Like, you could use your big brain to go cure cancer. He's like, nah, I like rocks. The kind of person who's willing to say, nah, I like rocks, tends to be pretty cool. Um, so I think, you know... 
definitely found my kind of people in the geology division. And I can see that you're sporting your geology swag on your ears right oh, now. Yeah. You've got these beautiful earrings yeah. that are composed of what kind of rock? Well, there's a, so it's not a rock. It's a volcanic glass. Ah. There's a obsidian, little obsidian flakes that, uh, you know, I won't, I won't say where I picked them up because I don't know that it was completely legal. But, uh, <laughs> the, you know, I apologize to the Cascade Volcano from which this was stolen. Um, I also have another, I have another, I have a necklace with a piece of olivine in it that was given to me by George Rossman. He's a professor at Caltech, and I mentioned something about liking olivine when I was just in his office. He's got all these, like, Indiana Jones drawers full of rocks in his office. He's like, olivine? I have some of that. And so he just runs and, you know, gives me... I don't know what to do with this. It's a, it's smaller than the size of a coin, like the tiniest coin you could find, a little chunk of olivine, but I ended up getting it mounted in a necklace, you know? So, I mean, that's a, like, find-your-people situation. You know, you're in a place where the profs... Well, instead of saying, oh, it's a dumb mineral, why do you like that? Or just not being interested at all. You know, he gets up super excited from his chair and goes and gets me a piece out of one of his copious drawers of rocks and minerals. Yeah, I would say that definitely classifies as a finder people moment. Yeah, I mean, it just felt, you know, I never felt like I was out of place in the geology division. Sometimes, you know, when I'd have to make one of those treacherous pilgrimages into one of the math buildings, drop off a homework set or something, it would be like, this feels wrong. This is not where I should be. If someone sees me here, they'll immediately know I'm not supposed to be here just by the way I'm carrying myself. You know, you can stroll confidently through the geology division, but you know, shirk at every corner in the math building. Maybe I, maybe I didn't have that, I found my people moment with the geologist, but I definitely found a, I definitely shouldn't be here moment in the math building. <laughs> so to wrap up, Elise, you're about to go to Denmark. Yeah. And Tilly literally had to run away from home to find herself and to realize what she loved, what she was willing to let go, who she was willing to disappoint to achieve her dreams. And so I was wondering if you had any last reflections or thoughts about the need for personal exploration, for distance, for just going out into the world and being on your own in terms of both just being a scientist and also a human being. Well, I think, you know, something these narratives tend to gloss over is that not every time you leave home is going to be some transformative experience, and that's okay. You know, I think it's sort of unfair to ask that from a journey, is to expect it to change you. Um, I don't want to go into this thinking that it's going to be, you know, these are the most transformative years of my life, because what if they pass and, you know, nothing happens, right? You know, I'd prefer to, to, to believe that things could change whenever. It's definitely easier for things to change when you're in a moment when nothing is set. So I will say that like college and, and travel and you know these are these are times when you when you might try new things just because you are out of your comfort zone already. So so it's easier to you know you have to try something new because there isn't anything familiar around. But I do I do get a little bit skeptical of of these stories where where it seems that you know the thing you need to do to change is to just leave. And sometimes that's true, but expecting that think is is dangerous you know i i'm really excited for this journey i'm hoping that i'll learn some things about myself i'm hoping that i'll have a clearer idea you know for instance going back to that like what niche i want to go into in science i'm really hoping i can spend some serious time figuring that out while i'm abroad but i don't want to expect that you know i i'm not a character in a novel i could very well go over there and just have a very pleasant time for 10 months and come back and still not know what i'm doing but that, then i will have had a very pleasant 10 months and even if I haven't changed, I've certainly learned a lot about something, right? So, yeah, I, I, I would caution against going into times 
expecting them to, to be transformative because that's not fair to the experience. You can have a great experience that's not transformative. You could have a great experience that's growth in a direction you're already moving, you know? Maybe I already transformed enough and I'm ready to just start growing straight up like a tree. But maybe I still gotta creep out, be more like a mushroom, you know, <laughs> have, that, have that crazy my mycelial network or whatever. Maybe that's what I'm supposed to be building. But I don't know that it's fair to ask, to ask the experience to be one way or another. Um, and I mean, I'm scared. Like, it's gonna be a little scary. It's gonna be a lot of new stuff, which is really, really exciting because like you say, you know, there's this, all this opportunity for transformation and this opportunity for new experiences, but it's also, I mean, it's risky, right? So I'm excited, I'm nervous, you know, I'm, I'm happy and I'm, I'm anxious and, you know, I'm, I'm sad to be leaving my, my friends and loved ones in the U.S., um, but I'm, I'm hoping to, to make some, some new friends and, and good connections over, over in Denmark, too which is, you know, I think in the, in the Star Trek vein, you know, they don't go out there on their five-year mission knowing what they're going to expect. They're just going out and looking and trying to be open to whatever they find, right? They're not going to be disappointed. You know, if they find a new culture that happens to be similar to one they've already encountered, they're not going to be like, bad culture, this sucks. This is not a transformative new addition to the Federation. Boo, we're going to blow up your planet. You know, they're going to be like, wow, this is really interesting that you're similar to these people we've met before. I why are there Nazis? Why are we on a Nazi planet? Yeah. How did this happen? You know, you, why is there a Rome planet? Why is there a car named after Jupiter? I don't know. Yeah, so why is it always space Nazis? Yeah. Like, why do people like putting Nazis in space? Anyways, the, looking at you, Star Wars and Star Trek and everything. Yeah, I don't know. I want to be more in the spirit of exploration than the spirit of self-improvement, you know? Does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah. That seems more like a Star Trek approach, whereas the, you know, gotta, gotta hone your skills and improve and find yourself seems more like the Star Wars approach. Now, I'm not on a hero's journey. I'm just out here looking for stuff. Well, Elise, thank you for taking time out of your busy summer to read The Way to the Stars. My busy summer. I've been doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and for sharing your thoughts and your experiences and your wisdom with me here wisdom. today. You know, I hope Mike edits this down to something that's remotely listenable. <laughs> um, and I hope I didn't bore all of you. But yeah, it's been great. Thank you so much. Yeah. And may the fluctuations you encounter be favorable over <laughs> in Denmark. That's all we can ask for. Thanks yes. so much, Mike. Mm -hmm. Elise is currently in Denmark, enjoying Star Trek Discovery on Netflix and unraveling the mysteries of microbial metabolism. Congrats again to her and to anyone who has recently finished college achieved some big life milestone, or embarked on a brand new personal journey. Not everyone's stories will mirror that of Sylvia Tilly or that of Elise Cutts. But that's 100% okay, because there is an infinite number of ways to the stars. I also want to thank Dr. Una McCormick, for writing the thoughtful and engaging Star Trek novel that we discussed today. She's published many other Star Trek novels. Her work usually features characters from Deep Space Nine, and I cannot recommend them highly enough. Seriously, no one writes Cardassians the way Una McCormick does. I hope that this is one of many book club renditions of Strange New Worlds. 
If you have comments on this episode or another book to recommend that we dissect from a science and Star Trek perspective, don't be afraid to tweet at me at MikeY. That's M-I-Q-U-A-I. Next up on Strange New Worlds, James Kirk is coming to the show. Yes, you heard me right, James Kirk. Until then, see you out there. Oxbridge chair. Yes. Is that really what it is called? That's what it's called. Because that's you know that's our you know the silly the silly name for for Oxford and Cambridge together. People say ah oh, Oxbridge. Really? Yeah. So maybe, maybe there is an actual place called Oxbridge where people brought oxes across the bridge. <laughs> Cambridge is a bridge over the can- like the, the the cam, and then Oxford is 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 a place where you could ford. Maybe there were oxen there edit this out.